I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 67, Sargon II, King of Babylonia. Previously, on Fan of History, Assyria attacked Babylonia and Sargon II of Assyria claimed the throne of Babylon for himself. Wow, big changes. So, what's going on this week, Dan? I'll tell you, but first I have to tell you about the Patreon, patreon.com fan of history. I think most podcast listeners know what Patreon is now. It's uh, spread to many podcasts. It's a great way to finance podcasts. If you really like this podcast and want to see it go past 701 BC, we are currently in 710 BC. Uh, please become a patron at patreon.com slash history. You contribute a sum you feel is good for every episode we publish and you don't pay anything unless we publish an episode. So it's great <laughs> motivation for us to continue. Right. Uh, we are currently below $30 and we need to be at $30 to go past 71 BC. If we don't hit $30, we'll do something else. But it could also be a break, but the podcast will not end. Um, and we have been above $30 and then below and it's really close. So <laughs> we could find just 15 people contributing $2. It would be awesome. Uh, we had a couple of people contribute a whole lot more than that. And that's, of course, also great. But please stay if you do that or just go <laughs> to $2 or so. But we, we just lost somebody who contributed 12 We really wanted to, this to continue, but then didn't. <laughs> okay, back to the story. Back to the story. Uh, king of the week, Sargon II, of course, because he's the king of Assyria and Babylonia. It's the year 710 BC, and Sargon II starts the new decade in Babylon. 
He has ruled Assyria since 722 BC. He has had so many successful campaigns and a few that were not so successful. He is now the king of both Assyria and Babylonia. And I want to go back and talk about his three arch enemies. Uh, his epic arch enemies. The, the arch enemies that make Sargon such an interesting king because he has these great enemies. They are Argishti II, the king of Urartu, inheriting this position from his father. And Argishti is still plotting. Uh, it's, uh, well, Arusa, the father of Argishti, took his life in 714 BC. Urartu is invaded by uh, Samarians. The barbarians are having a field day in Urartu. And Argishti is kind of busy. But he still has hostile intentions. He still wants to take vengeance on Sargon for the death of his father. The other enemy is Merodach Baladan. He was driven away from Babylon in the last episode. He's in exile in Elam. He ruled Babylonia as a great king, a really good king, for 12 years before he ran away. And the Bityakin tribe in the Sealand, the Chaldeans, they're still loyal to their own guy. And the other Chaldeans are like, oh, we wish Merodach Balaran came back. And Merodach Balaran has all intention of coming back and becoming the king of Babylon once again. The third arch enemy of Sargon is King Midas of Phrygia. King Midas has been influencing the lords of Anatolia to rebel against Sargon for many years now. But he's also fighting the Cimmerians because they have invaded his country as well. This is still plotting against Sargon. And now we need to look at Sargon II as king of Babylon. So one problem with this way of ruling Babylon as an Assyrian is that as an Assyrian you are kind of qualified to be a native king of Babylon. Because they are related. The Assyrians and native Babylonians, the city dwellers, they are related. So you could make the case that you are a Babylonian. But the problem is that you have to stay around in Babylon. There are so many duties for the king of Babylon. So if the Assyrian king do Assyrian king stuff that Assyrian kings usually do, he can't be in Babylon. <laughs> and Sargon II realizes this. He realizes that I, am, I have to stay in Babylon for at least a while and prove to them that I intend to rule Babylon as a Babylonian king. And even from the start, from the, from the death of Shalmaneser III, long, long ago in this podcast, this has been a constant problem for Assyria. What to do about the Babylonian question? How do we handle this country to our south that we really respect and really actually feel inferior to? How can we rule them? And every Assyrian king has tried something new, or most of them have, and none of the methods have been working very well. And I can see why Sargon II chooses to become the king on location in Babylon, because that is what worked for Tiglath-Pileser III. So he has this example in his own lifetime of a method that seemed to work, but we will learn that this is not the final solution to this question. And in fact, there is no good final solution to this question. And it is the Babylonian question that will bring down the Assyrian Empire eventually. Um, 
But let's look at what Sargon does. We talked about the situation in Babylon last time, so we'll not go through this again. I think I've gone through the, the <laughs> different tribes and stuff like yeah. five times at least. I hope you remember. But Sargon II uses all his energy on the non-tribal population of Babylonia, these city dwellers, the Sumerians in some sense, but the relatives of the Assyrians. So he really wants to be one of them and portray himself as one of them. And even before Merodach Balran ran away, the leading citizens of Babylon and Borsippa, the other really ancient important city, the city of truth and justice, they came to Sargon's camp because they predicted that this is what he wanted to do. Because they saw that, oh, Merodach Balan won't be able to handle this. So high temple officials, men of great families and scribes, came to the camp of Sargon to see what his intentions were. And they offered him the remnants of cultic meals. And let's talk about what that means. Yeah, I was about to ask. Yes, the Babylonians, as many ancient kingdoms or cultures, they sacrifice food to the gods. And every Babylonian city has a god. And then you show up with these cultic meals for the gods. You just give food to the god. And then you leave the food at the, the statue of the god. And then what probably usually happens is that some priests eat it when nobody's watching. <laughs> But of course, there are remnants of these Celtic meals. You have this half-rotten food that the god uh, sort of spiritually ate. And they bring these leftovers to Sargon. And Sargon is super happy about that. Because this is a sign that they consider him Babylonian royalty. Because apparently royalty is offered remnants of Celtic meals. Um, okay. Yeah, you were saying? Oh, I say okay. That's strange, but yeah, keep going. <laughs> it's, it's really strange, but from day one, Sargon II has said that he was the son of Tiglath Pileser III. That was the the basis of his rule. He, he legitimized his rule by saying that I am the son of Tiglath Pileser III, and we we think that is a lie, but. Uh, here it plays right into his hand because Tiglath Pileser III was the king of Babylon. He managed to make himself the king of Babylon. So Sargon is saying, I'm one of you. I am your prince. I am the son of your old king. So he accepts these uh, leftovers. I don't know if he had to eat them in front of people. That would be a funny picture. <laughs> but before these high officials, Sargon accepts royal responsibilities as I will be a good king and he immediately starts to market himself as a true king of Babylonian as a oh, as a Babylonian king of Babylon and once he takes power he makes sure he is there to do every duty of the Babylonian king he shows up in the super important New Year's rites at the Temple of Marduk and this rite is really important to everybody in Babylon so if the king is not there at the Temple of Marduk, grasping the hand of the god at New Year, the Babylonians are super worried. But Sargon is there. He's grabbing the hand of Marduk. He's like, 
I am a Babylonian. And he really works on the temples. He gives lavish gifts to all the Babylonian temples. And he adds Babylonian royal titles to his official titulary, which is already very long, as you know. (laughs) And you can listen to the thing I did on YouTube when Sargon tells his own story. You will find him addressing himself as the king of Babylon. And then, when he is firmly in power, he of course blames Merodach Balanim for everything that is not right in Babylonia. So, according to Sargon, Merodach Balanim has abused and neglected Babylonia. And then it's up to Sargon to set everything right. And this is what is recorded, that Sargon sets everything right. He releases the urban hostages. I don't know what that is, but uh, sounds important. He extended tax exemption privileges because, remember, Merodach Baladan had given back the tax exemption privileges to three major cities. But Sargon adds another set of cities, and notably Ur, Uruk, Eridu, Larsa, Kisik, and Nemed Laguda. They are all tax exempt, and they rise to the status of the big cities. So they are really happy with Sargon. They're like, oh, we don't have to pay tax anymore. Sargon is awesome. And especially in Uruk, this works incredibly strong, strongly. So Uruk becomes a strong Assyrian ally. And this is a city somewhat to the south, which means that Babylonia now has a strong ally in Babylonia in the south, which is something entirely new. So Uruk could keep a bit of control over the Chaldeans in the marches to the south. And Sargon just keeps blaming Merodach Balanam for everything. He returns the neglected countryside of northwest Babylonia to order. And he says that this is something that Merodach Baladan he, he created this order in the northwest. But of course the disorder in the northwest is because the Assyrians kept invading <laughs> the northwest. So Sargon imports prisoners from other fronts to populate the area. He hunts down the Arameans and the Sutians that plunder the countryside. So he actually restores order to this war-torn area. But then again, he caused the disorder originally. He restores stolen statues of gods to the Babylonian cities. Remember, every important Babylonian city has its own god. And they are represented by statues. And someone had taken these statues, and Sargon restores them. That's great. Who did you think? Who do you think <laughs> took the statues? How did he happen to have them all? That's a question <laughs> we need to answer. <laughs> because they were stolen by Assyrians. Oh wow! Yeah, he just, just took them from his palace. <laughs> yeah, this one was in the bathroom. Let's give it back to this other. Uh... <laughs> oh, so this is your important city. god. Well, I, I I recovered it for you. <laughs> yeah. He finds all these building projects that Merodach Baladan had started. Right. And he claims them all. And he puts his name on them that I started this. This was started by Sargon, who I am so great. Wow, this method of governing seems so familiar. God, where where have I heard this before? (laughs) Yeah, where did you? Uh, So this is Sargon's plan to become the the well-liked king of Babylon. And uh, we'll leave 
we leave Babylonia for a little while and go to Cyprus. We haven't talked a lot about Cyprus, this big island right next to the Assyrian Empire. But I have made two videos on the Final History YouTube channel with a historian from Cyprus talking about the history of Cyprus between 1500 BC. So if you want more about Cyprus, uh, look up those videos. But it, Cyprus is important to Sargon. Of course, we have a record that seven kings of Yah sent precious gifts to Sargon. And Yah was a district of Yadnana, according to the Assyrians. And it appears that Yadnana is Cyprus. Uh, Sargon makes a lot about his control over Cyprus. Uh, he did defend Salamis. And Salamis is uh, a vassal state of Tyre, and Tyre is a vassal state of Sargon. Salamis had problems with Greek pirates in the last decade, and Sargon actually did something to help them. He probably sent Assyrian troops to Cyprus because the Assyrians hate the sea. But if you just go over to Cyprus and then fight on land on Cyprus, it's kind of okay. Uh, and once again, in 709 or 708 BC, Assyrian troops are ferried over to Cyprus. And this is most likely done by Tyre because Tyre is a Phoenician city, a vassal state of Assyria. And Tyre isn't afraid of the sea. They love the sea. So they ferry over Assyrian troops. And the, the plan here is probably to keep the other rulers of Cyprus in check. So maybe Tyre rules Cyprus. Maybe Salamis is kind of the main kingdom on Cyprus. And the Greek kingdoms. The other kingdoms are Greek in nature. Not, not ruled from Greece or anything like that. But they're very Greek. So maybe Tyre rules Cyprus and Assyria rules Tyre. And of course the Cypriot kingdoms, they haven't seen anything like the Assyrian army. They're like, uh-oh, we yield as <laughs> soon as the Assyrians show up. Um, and Sargon, as I said, he makes a lot about this. He sends an inscribed stele to be erected on Cyprus. And we have the record that I made an image of myself and I put it on the <laughs> island of Yadnana. And we found this stele. It was found on Cyprus in the 19th century. So it appears that Sargon is not uh, lying uh, in everything he says about Cyprus. So this, this, it looks like this happened. So now Sargon claims to be the overlord of the entire island. And we have some mysterious people called the Papu. The Papu are hanging out at Sargon's court and they are mentioned in the letters. As I've said before, we have a ton of letters from Sargon's court between court officials and uh, important people in Assyria. And they mention these people, the Papu, and our best guess is that they are people from Papos on Cyprus. So we have some Cypriots hanging out at the, the court of Sargon. And they will eventually cause trouble for Sargon, but not now. Not in 709 BC. Now, that's a strange definition of now, but... <laughs> and then, in 709 BC, the Assyrian governor of Q, who I mentioned earlier in the last episode, he 
<laughs> does uh, it takes an incredible initiative and does something very proactive. And I, I think this, of course, is on order from Sargon II. But we get the mention that this was done by the Assyrian governor of Q and not by Sargon himself. So that's remarkable that Sargon doesn't claim this. because I, And I think it is because he has to insist that he is in Babylon. Because he is in Babylon. He really wants to make a case that he is in Babylon, being the king of Babylon. Yeah. So this Assyrian governor of Q, he attacks Phrygia. This is the first Assyrian assault on the kingdom of Midas. So Assyrian armies attack the border provinces of Phrygia. And now for the first time, Phrygian soldiers are fighting Assyrian soldiers. And we get to learn who are the best soldiers. Phrygians are probably influenced by Greek warfare. We have a lot of mentions of King Midas in the Greek sources, most of them mythical, of course, but King Midas seems to have had a lot of interactions with the Greeks. He is probably impressed by their way of making war, but we don't know how much they fight like Greeks. But they stand no chance against the Assyrians. And uh, this is super successful. So every battle is won, prisoners are taken, and... Um, this, of course, is incredibly problematic for King Midas because his country is still being invaded by the Cimmerians. The Cimmerians are not very focused. They are not like, we are going to crush Phrygia, but they are, we are going to raid that place and that place. And now we're going to go home to the mountains over there. And now we're going. So they're just running around, causing chaos in Phrygia. But this is too much for Midas. And. Uh, Midas opened uh, open diplomatic talks to the Assyrian governor at Q. And he says to the Assyrian governor at Q that I have a letter for your king. This is a letter for Sargon II. Make sure this letter gets to you. can't read it, Mr. Governor, but send it to Sargon II. And this letter arrives at Babylon, where Sargon II still is. And it's... Uh, it's a plea for peace. Maida says something. We don't have the letter, but it's probably right. along the lines of, why are there so many misunderstandings between us, brother? We have always been friends, etc. <laughs> but Sargon is delighted at this. And he writes back immediately. And we have Sargon's letter. And Sargon's letter is, of course, orders for the governor at Kew. And the orders are, number one, agree to the peace with Phrygia. Return all Phrygian prisoners to King Midas and install Assyrian diplomats at Midas's court in his capital of Gordium. Pretty friendly, right? Mm-hmm. Seems on the up and up. Yes. And this diplomacy between Midas and Sargon works out Really great. Midas is super happy with this reply. And he sends a formal Phrygian delegation to travel to Babylonia with gifts for Sargon. So Sargon is delighted that some Phrygians show up at Babylon and bring him gifts. And there is suddenly peace in the Northwest. And they keep communicating. Midas and Sargon become allies. And 
maybe even buddies. Which is a, a huge change here. We have this is one of the three arch enemies. Yeah, no kidding. But it works out great. So suddenly Midas, and we will see that Midas is not lying about this. And Sargon isn't either. They become friends, I dare say. Wow. <laughs> That's uh, unexpected. Yeah, no right? kidding. Friendship and happiness. That's not something we see often in this show. But we've had examples of it before. Uh, remember, Ashurnasipal II and Shalmanes III were great friends with yeah. the king of Babylon. And kept their alliance and all their promises and stuff. And this is what happens between Midas and Sargon. But the rebellions in eastern Anatolia, they continue. The northwest border still has problems. So maybe Midas wasn't behind these problems. Maybe it was Urartu. <gasps> Urartu. And that's what Sargon claims in his official inscriptions. He is... Midas gets a lot of bad press when, uh, like 10 years before this, when Midas showed up. But from now on, Midas is a brother and an ally in the inscription. And Urartu gets the blame for everything. And we will see if there's any truth to this. We're still in 709 BC. It's been one year since Merodach Baladan was uh, exiled from Babylon or fled Babylon. And in 79 BC, he shows up again in Babylon. <laughs> Merodach Balaram will always be back. You haven't heard the last of him. In fact, you haven't even heard half yet, I think. So he appears in the sea land, in the marshes, in the Chaldean heartland. And uh, he takes control of the sea land. And the Chaldeans are super happy. They're like, oh, Merodach Balaram is back. Oh, Chaldeans should always be kings of Babylon. And the Sealand isn't uh, that big. It's like he's not in control of Babyl Babylonia, he's in control of only the Sealand. And he intends to. He knows that Sargon will show up now. Sargon has left the Sealand alone for way too long. So he decides to take a stand at his own capital, probably in the city he grew up in, in Duryakin. It, it, today it's called Tel Al-Lam. But this is his own capital, the capital of his own tribe. This is where he submitted to Tiglath Pileser III long, long ago. It was Merodach Baladan himself that did that. But he, he strengthens the wall of Duryakin. He builds a canal from the Euphrates. He floods the surrounding plain. Uh, do we recognize this tactic? Yeah, I'm saying it again. It's the same tactic he used at Dur Atkara in the last episode. And when he takes this stand against Sargon, the Aramean tribes, they're like, let's sneak to the south and show up at Merodach Balanan's court. And wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Help him. So the Arameans are once again with Murdoch Baladan. So Arameans and Chaldeans, they make up his troops. And it doesn't take long. Sargon is already in Babylonia. And he still has the army in Babylonia as well. So uh, Sargon attacks Durjakin. And then he sees these great fortifications. He sees the flooding. And he's like, oh, this is going to take some work. But we can do this. So the Assyrians build earthen banks across the water. So they build like bridges over the water, pretty much. Or in the water. And Merodach Baladan remembers the Battle of Durathkara in 710 BC. And he's like, uh, we can't allow ourselves to get besieged in the city. So even though he strengthened the walls of the city, he decides to take a stand outside the city and claim the high ground. Because apparently the city isn't built on the high ground, which seems strange. Yeah. But he takes a stand with the army and decides to meet the Assyrians in open battle. And surely this is a great mistake. And when Sargon sees a chance for open battle, he knows his tactic. He charges. And this time, the whole Assyrian army charges with him. And Merodach Baladan must be thinking, uh, hmm, what am I doing? <laughs> well, what, what do I usually do when I'm in a fight? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a stand here for Chaldea. But then he get, takes an arrow in the hand. So Merodach Baladan is shot in the hand and then he says, oh no, screw this. I'm going to do what I do best. I'm going to flee. Yeah, there's, yeah, it, it's, it's like Mike Tyson said, Every fighter he came up against had a plan until they got hit in the face. <laughs> and this seems, seems exactly what has happened here. <laughs> That's exactly it. But Merodach Balanin is still intent on fighting Sargon. But he decides now, okay, maybe I should fight him from my walls. So he flees into the city. And the Assyrian army slaughters everybody who doesn't have time to get into the city. They plunder the area and they put the city under siege. And somehow, Merodach Baladan slips away again. During the siege, Merodach Baladan just is not in the city anymore. And we have no idea how he did this. Surely Sargon must have been prepared for this and kept a tight watch on the city. But eventually the city falls. And the Assyrians plunder the city. 
the fortifications are torn down and the people are deported. And they're marked for deportation. Mm. And Sargon is like, where is Merodach Balan? And he can't find him. Somehow he slipped away. Again. Uh, That's but, crazy. Uh, it's crazy. <laughs> How does he do this all the time? But the people of Duryakin, this tribe, Bityakin, they've caused so many problems for the Syrians. So now Sargon wants to deal with them once and for all. Where to send these Chaldeans? Which border could use them? Sargon is thinking hard about that. He's splitting the Bityakin tribal lands, the traditional tribal lands of the tribe, are split into two parts. One is put under the Assyrian governor of Gambulu, which is close enough. And one portion is put under Babylonian jurisdiction with Babylonian officials. And of course, Sargon is the king of Babylon, so he rules that part. Uh, or his Babylonian officials rule the, rules one part and the Assyrian governor of Gambulu rules the other part. Uh, so let's look at Sargon's reign in Babylon. And this might seem like an early point to do that, but it won't be long. <laughs> uh, it seems that his reign was free from major disorders. And if I rated Merodach Balanan as a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10 as a king, Sargon didn't do worse than a 7 at least. He stayed in Babylon for three years, for the majority of these three years, 210 to 27 BC. Uh, and uh, he, he had Sennacherib in Dur-Sharukin in the new capital and in the old capital. I bet Sennacherib was traveling between them. And Sennacherib made sure that the rest of the empire was in order. So now Sennacherib is pretty much in charge of the whole empire except for Babylon. We have plenty of clay tablets going back and forth between Babylon and Dur-Sharukin. Uh, and we have a record of two kings of Dilmun in the Persian Gulf. This is pretty far away from the Assyrian sphere of influence. And they send gifts to mighty King Sargon of Babylon with no mention of Assyria. Um, well, as I said, the rebellions in the northwest continue. And now it's time for Kumuku to rebel. Uh, it's ruled by Mutallo of Kumuku. We, we talked about him several times. He was once a trusted vassal. But he now openly declares his allegiance to Argishti II. And this just proves to me that Argishti II of Urartu is not as clever as Midas. Because <laughs> it's very apparent who is behind this. Urartu is behind this rebellion. Yeah. And Midas, if he was ever behind rebellions, he always kept it a secret. But uh, the king of Urartu is like, I, I started this. <laughs> That's dumb. But, <laughs> but he has a problem. He can't really send help to Kumuku because his army is occupied by the Sumerians. So an Assyrian punitive campaign is sent to Kumuku. Not led by Sargon, because Sar if you ask Sargon, where is Sargon? He's in Babylon, being the king of Babylon. But this punitive campaign crushes the army of Kumuku. Uh, Mutallu, the king, he knows what happens if he's captured. So he flees to the mountains and gets away. But he forgot to bring his family, so they are carried off to Assyria and never heard of again. 
And now Mutalu <laughs> cleared, he, he helped Sargon with the problem because now Sargon knows where to deport the Chaldeans. So he takes the people of Komuku, deport them to the sea land in southern Babylonia. So they are living there in the mountains of Anatolia and they are brought to the marches of the south of Iraq. And then he takes the Chaldeans and moves them to the mountains. So Komuku is controlled with Chaldean uh, auxiliaries who then have no relation to Urartu and must fight Urartians as Assyrians. And I don't know what the people of Komuku are supposed to do in the marches, but they are there in the marches. Komuku becomes a province, a full Assyrian province. There's an Assyrian governor and most of the people are Chaldeans. And here I see uh, a diplomatic opportunity for the enemies of Sargon. Because these Chaldeans in the mountains, they are not happy to be there. So what if Urartu talk to them? And we're like, I, we hate Sargon, you hate Sargon, let's join up. Right. Uh, maybe this will happen in the future. But we now know that King Argishti II of Iraq, he plots against Sargon. And he intends to start another rebellion in the north to distract Sargon. Because uh, he can't do it himself because he's fighting the Cimmerians. So he sends uh, diplomats to Cilicia, another Anatolian kingdom, to start another rebellion. But something very surprising happens to these ambassadors. Because in order to get to Cilicia, they have to go through territory controlled by Midas and the Phrygians. And Midas arrests them. Hmm. Says, oh no, you're not doing that on my watch. <laughs> so he arrests, interrogates the ambassadors, and he sends a detailed report to Sargon. So this is what the king of Rartu tried to do. And then Argishti II realized that Midas has truly switched sides. There was never a formal alliance between Phrygia and Urartu, but now King Argishti sees that this powerful Phrygian kingdom is now on the side of Sargon. And he decides that this is way too much for me to handle. I have to deal with the Cimmerians who are invading Urartu. So Argishti II submits to Sargon. Which is uh, a pretty big thing. I was about to say, he thought he could go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and now he's backing down and wants to become allies. Yeah, he, he he says, oh, okay, what do I need to do to be your vassal? And there's an agreement reached. And it seems that Sargon likes this. And we only get, we, we get these details. Uh, remember in 714 BC, um, Sargon plundered Musasir and took the main statue of the once main uh, Urartian god, Kaldi. And this statue is returned to Musasir. Uh, so Sargon returns this stolen statue of the main, of the old main Urartian god. Which is kind of friendly. Argishti II sends uh, 500 timbers, that doesn't sound like very much, and a lot of workmen 
to work on the Great Palace in Korsabad, this uh, Durshaukin, this new city that Sargon is building, which still isn't finished. And uh, peace in the north, peace over the entire north, peace Crazy. with Phrygia, peace with Urartu. So oh. now Sargon's empire starts to look much more stable than the empire of TP3. We have peace in the north. Sargon is the king of Babylon. The only source of trouble. The west has been crushed entirely. Egypt is very friendly. So the only problems remain in the east. And there is no tangible problem in the east right now. But we know that the problems in the east, they appear all the time. And in 708 BC, there is a problem in the east. Because King Dalta of Ilippi, this tiny kingdom that is sort of like Elam, but much smaller. Uh, King Dalta has been a loyal vassal to Tiglath Pelesu III and a loyal vassal to Sargon. But he dies in 708 BC. And remember, all ancient agreements are between men and not between nations. So who is going to be the king of Ilippi? There are two sons of Dalta. There are probably many, many sons of Dalta. Being a good Mesopotamian king, he has a harem, a <laughs> ring, with a lot of wives. So two of his sons feel powerful enough to try to claim the throne. So there is an obvious succession problem here. King, we don't know what King Dalta thought about succession, but these guys have their own ideas. So we have a son called Nibe. Uh, he decides to ally himself to Elam, because Elam is close and Sargon is far away. So he's thinking, Elam can strengthen my kingship of Ilippi so I can be the king. But Ispabara, his brother, his half-brother, he turns to Sargon. He, he does the right thing. He's like, this Sargon guy seems to be pretty good at what he does. So let's ally, ally myself to him like dad did. And maybe they don't even know what's happening in Babylon, but I think they know that Sargon is the king of Babylon. And Babylon is much closer to Ilippi than uh, Kala is. So Sargon is close. And uh, Sargon is, well, wait a minute, Ilippi is my vassal kingdom, and this guy is Pabara. He says that he wants it to remain that way, so I gotta help him. Whereas Nibe, the other prince of Ilippi, he, he turns to King Shutur Nahunt of Elam and says, hey, you gotta help me, the Assyrians are coming. And remember, King Shutur Nahunt, the second of Elam, he had a chance to oppose Sargon and defend Merodach Baladan, but he didn't. But this time, he decides to send an Elamite army to help Prince Nibe and get Ilippi as a vassal kingdom of Elam. So 12 years after the, the last fight, the Assyrian army is up against the Elamite army again. We've seen that the Elamite army is the only army that can stand against Assyria that has proven their worth and probably won the battle against Assyrians. Mm -hmm. But this was uh, a provincial Assyrian army, and now they're facing the full might of Sargon II. And of course, that doesn't work out. I was about to say, there's no way. <laughs> so the Assyrian army, 
still in control of the Elamite border fortresses, they drive the Elamites back to Elam. And Prince Ispabara is installed as the king of Ilippi. He promises to be a loyal vassal to the Assyrians, and this promise has some uh, weight behind it, because his father was such a loyal vassal. So Sargon is very happy, and Ilippi remains uh, an Assyrian vassal kingdom. And now for some sports! Sports! It's been so sports. long! Yes, it's the 18th Olympiad in 708 BC. In Greece. We don't talk much about the Greeks here, but that's because so much happens with Sargon. Right. But we have some winners listed here, so let's honor these sports guys that did great things uh, 2,700 years ago. <laughs> Tellis of Sikion, he wins the stadium race, and the stadium race is always the most important event of the Olympics. Yeah. Eribatus of Laconia, that is probably a Spartan, wins the wrestling event, and Lampis of Laconia, probably also a Spartan, wins the pentathlon. And the pentathlon is a new event. It's uh, five different things in one, just like today. It includes a stadium race, a double stadium, it's about 400 meters. Uh, it's the long race, the Dolikos. to 24 stadiums long. That's very random length. Do they decide here? I don't know. I said, do they flip a coin? <laughs> Are we going to run 1,400 meters or 4,800 meters? Um, it's jumping. I don't know if they jump. Oh, they, oh, I have some details on the jumping, so let's discuss that after we mention the fifth uh, sport, which is the discus throw. <coughs> but these are not individual competitions, they are all part, part of the pentathlon. For the jumping, the athletes used stone or lead weights called halteres, because they felt that these weights would increase the distance of jump, so it's long jumping. So they held onto the weights until the end of their flight, and then they jettisoned the weights backwards. So right when you were about to hit the ground, you threw these weights back, so you would get further. Uh, weird. I said, I don't think that it's going to work the way they think it's going to work. Somebody was uh, thinking about physics in Greece at this time, at least. The discus. Started out being made of stone, but later they made discus of iron, lead, or bronze. And uh, discus throwing appears to be almost uh, exactly like what it is like today. The technique was similar to what you could see in the last Olympics. Hmm. And that's the sports report for 708 BC. In 707 BC, something happens in Egypt. Shabaka, the pharaoh, dies. Shabaka was the brother of Pie. Mm -hmm. He counts as the second pharaoh of the 25th dynasty. The year of his death is quite uncertain. It could be 702 BC. In fact, before 1999, everybody was convinced that Shabaka died in 702 BC. But they found new evidence in 1999, so extremely recent for this podcast. Oh yeah, that's like last week. We found an Egypt-Assyrian synchronism 
from the great inscription of Tang Ivar in Iran. Uh, it had been discovered before, but it had been lost. It was rediscovered and reanalyzed. And it seemed that this great inscription was made by Sargon II. And the inscription is dated to 707 or 706 BC. And it talks about this event in Ashdod that we mentioned in the last episode, that the King Yamani of Ashdod was extradited from Egypt to Sargon. And uh, in this inscription, it is revealed that it was Shebitku, the next pharaoh, who did this tradition. And, and then it also then places this 12 last episode, puts Shabaka's death before 712. So it's interpretations of this. Thorgon says in this inscription, uh, do you want to do your best, Thorgon? <laughs> yeah, let me see. Alright, here's Sargon. I plundered the city of Ashdod. Iamani, its king, feared my weapons, and he fled from the region of the land of Melua and lived there like a thief. Shapataku, Shibiku, king of the land of Meluha, heard of the might of the god Asher, Nabu and Marduk, which I had demonstrated over all lands. He put Iamani in manacles and handcuffs. He had him brought captive into my presence. Notice the mention of Marduk, the main god of Babylon here. Uh, so it sort of implies that this happens during the time that Sargon is the king of Babylon. Uh, some Egyptologists have suggested that there was a co-regency between Shebitku and Shabaka, but that has been put down. So Shebitku becomes the pharaoh of the 25th dynasty, the third pharaoh, when Shabaka dies. Shebitku is the son of Pia and the nephew of Shabaka. So remember the rules of Nubian succession, like your brother inherits and then your son inherits after mm. your brother. <coughs> Seems like a system that could be, um, could go bad. Yeah. But Shebitku rules Egypt until 690 BC, so he will be back in our story. Remember Shebitku, pharaoh of Egypt. He's a Nubian of the 25th dynasty. In 707 BC as well, we have an event in China. The sources for China are pretty bad at this time, but here is something. Uh, Huan is the king of the Eastern Zhou dynasty. He is kind of a puppet king, but it will grow worse because of this event. Because Duke Shuang of Sheng uh, has opposed the king, and this rivalry has turned into open war in 707 BC. And there's a battle, and I hate to pronounce this, the Battle of Shuge. Please help me, anybody who knows Chinese. Uh, X-U-G-E. Yes. Shuge. Shuge. 
to say. No, okay, I won't yeah. try it. Uh, in this battle, King Juan uh, gets an arrow in the shoulder and he's wounded. And Duke Shuang wins the battle and keeps doing whatever he wants. He doesn't remove the king, but the prestige of the royal house of Zhou is, of course, seriously hurt by this event. And Duke Shuang ruled Sheng as a duke then between 743 and 71 BC. So important Chinese nobleman. And that's all I have from China and all I have for this episode. Ooh, that is it. Wow. It looks like our next episode, Sargon II returns to Assyria, finally, and works on his new city, Dar Sharukin, and then does something that no other Assyrian king has done before. It's a surprise. All right. So, we would like you to consider going to our YouTube page also. Subscribe, like, and share. Give us a review on iTunes. Remember, we will read all the reviews. Facebook.com slash fanofhistory. Also, Patreon.com if you want us to continue this narrative. It's very important. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. If you want to follow Dan on Twitter, it's at Dan Horning. If you want to follow me, I'm at Cerulean Says Hi. And Dan, I think you had some uh, something you wanted to go over here at the end. Yes, uh, I wonder if you have any questions for us. Uh, you can ask us about anything, but uh, I, I kind of expect the questions to be mostly about <laughs> the end of the 8th century BC. But if you have any opinions about our show or anything else you wonder, please ask us. You can send an email to thefanofhistory at gmail.com. So the fan of history, one word, all uh, small letters. Or you can make a comment on the YouTube channel and mention in the comment that this is for the podcast. And then we'll, uh, we'll uh, answer your question on the podcast. Yes, we will. We'll go through it. All right. So for this week, I am Brennan. And I'm Dan. And this has been Fan of History. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.